Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network podcast on science, technology, and society, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jake Chaninson, and today we'll be talking with Ben Schneiderbin about his new book, Human-Centered AI. The book has just been announced as the winner of the Prose Category Award for Computing Information Sciences by the American Association of Publishers. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jake. I was wondering if you could start off by telling us what is human-centered AI? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a growing new field <clears throat> with a growing number of people who believe that the goal of the design of technology is to ensure human control while increasing the level of automation. And <clears throat> the strategies of human-centered AI are design processes that deal with users in a strong participatory way and test with users and refine with users and work closely to understand what users' needs are. <clears throat> the second part of human-centered design is a set of design guidelines and principles by which designers think about what they want to create in these tools, how to empower people, how to amplify, augment, enhance, and empower them to perform the, the task that they want to do. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about these tools. In the book, you talk about these super tools that I thought was a really uh, excellent way to frame the issue. Right. Um, I think of these as super tools that give people superpowers. And I think my, my favorite example is your typical um, digital camera on your phone. It's got lots of AI uh, to do the shutter and color balance and aperture and focus and, and uh, even reduce hand jitter. Yet, the user is in control. The user frames the picture. They zoom where they want to. They wait till the expression's just right on the faces of the people they're photographing, and they click for their decisive moment. It's their photo. They can edit it, they can discard it, or they can share it with other friends and family. So it's a platform which is built on a set of principles that ensures human control while increasing the level of automation. How is this different from, say, intelligent agents? Yeah, the older ideas of intelligent agents suggested that there was sometimes a human-like form um, which, or, or a human character that was somehow doing the job for you. 
um, guiding you through it, taking care of you, doing what's needed. And I think that idea is attractive, it's compelling, but it's kind of dated and a cliche that no longer works. If you look at the 2 million apps on the App Store or the Android Store, you'll find that they all are, almost all of them based on the direct manipulation idea, the idea of giving people control over their tools, that they can click to get what they want done and move on to the next thing. And if they want, they can go back. They can, as, as where possible, operations are reversible. They can edit, they're in control, they're in charge. It's their photo, it's their navigation trip, it's their work. So I was wondering, now that we know kind of what human-centered AI is all about, if you could tell us a little bit, or at least we have an idea, right? Um, If you could tell us a little bit about what motivated you to write this book in the first place. Well, my career has been as a a pioneer and leader in the field that's called human-computer interaction. Uh, and user experience design. These are important topics and later on topic of information visualization. So I've always been focused on how to design technology that serves human needs. And I've had a satisfying role in in developing, for example, the user interface for the link in web-based systems. The idea that certain words are highlighted in light blue on your screen and you click on them to go somewhere. And that idea we tested in a dozen different studies and changed the colors to blue to red to other ways of highlighting. And there were a lot of things that were we studied. With red, people could see the links easily, but they, did, they didn't focus on the content. So we came to understand that better. Um, I also played a role in developing the touchscreen interfaces for mobile devices. The idea that you could have a small three-inch keyboard on a touchscreen was made possible by our work in, on, on, on new touchscreen high-precision technologies. Um, I also have a patent on the, the way you um, annotate photographs. You drag and drop names onto a photograph to label them. Now that's done in many ways and Uh, in more automatic ways. So I've seen the way small ideas can have powerful impacts. And the current interest in AI is is warranted. These new AI tools are powerful, remarkable, and we want to put them to good work. So we want to make sure they succeed. And for me, the, the, the important strategy to make them succeed is to ensure human control while increasing the level of automation. Moving back to automation, in your book, you talk about three principles, reliable, safe, and trustworthy systems. Could you expand on what each of these things mean? Yeah, we want systems that work not just 80 or 90% of the time, but they're reliable, especially as we move to consequential and life-critical applications. We can't have systems that fail. Um, That's the first principle. We need to see that they really work in a in a strong way. If you were talking about aviation or medical care, 98% accuracy is not enough. So reliable is strong. Safety is the second principle, and you want to make sure that they're safe, that they, they cannot produce harmful effects that could be deadly. And so that's important. And then trustworthy, you want to build systems in which users have trust in the system. And that trust is earned because the system delivers reliable and safe performance. So those are the combination of terms I've chosen. There are about 30 terms out there that people are discussing. And I chose these three to focus on 
And I think those are useful ways. I think the goals of these things are more than just the system design. We want the user's experience to be built, filled with the sense of self-efficacy, the idea of creativity, that the tool is in their hands and they can be creative, that they are responsible for what happens, and that they're socially connected. So those are fundamental principles. And even more deeply foundational is the idea that, that systems are designed to uh, adhere to and support human rights, social justice, and individual dignity. So there's, there's a whole layered set of principles we want to deliver when we design future systems. In your book, you mentioned that you have a two-dimensional framework. Are these principles incorporated in this framework? Yeah, I would say the framework was a real breakthrough in thinking that people who've worked in this field for a long time have really appreciated. The old model was a one-dimensional one where you went from human control up to 10 steps to full computer control. And the assumption was if you increased the computer control, you necessarily had to reduce human control. And that zero-sum game was what I believed and what others did for many years. But it, I became less and less happy with that and I became aware that there were many times where I wanted to ensure full human control and have high levels of automation. And so that turned me to the two-dimensional framework, which suggests that you have separate scale, maybe on the, on the x-axis for the computer control from low to high, and on the y-axis of human control from low to high. And while there are times you want high levels of computer control, the things have to happen rapidly, such as airbag deployment in, in car crashes. There are also times where you want to ensure full human control, like when you're riding your bicycle, playing your piano, or being with your children. Uh, so those were extremes on one side that we needed to consider. And then it was important to consider <clears throat> the, the upper right quadrant, which was ensuring the high levels of human control and high levels of computer control. And the way you do that, as I described with uh, cell phone cameras, is that you divide the problem into subtasks and the tasks where the computer can be reliable, safe, and trustworthy, you make, you use, use computers. The parts where humans want to be in control to compose the photos and choose the moment when they click for, the, for their decisive moment, those you want to preserve human control. So this two-dimensional model became very important. It also suggested that there were dangers of excessive automation, which occurred such as in the Boeing 737 crashes a few years ago, and there were dangers of excessive human control. And so this kind of guardrails um, that you put and interlocks that are part of human factors engineering for a very long time. So there was a systematic way of thinking about the design and the strategies that you would use and the degrees of human and computer control. Could you elaborate a little bit more on what are excessive computer control and what would be excessive human control? Sure. Um, the Boeing 737 is the most familiar example. Uh, the engineers who designed it believe they can make a fully automated system which would... Um, control the airplane under certain conditions. Uh, it was so automatic that the pilots were not even alerted that the system was in place and that it was not, when it was activated, there was no signal and there was no 
visual display that was obvious to the pilots about how to turn it off. And so in the confusion, the pilots, uh, as the plane tried to point nose down, the pilots pulled it nose up 20 times in the 12 minutes before the crash occurred. So there was a case of excessive um, machine control. Excessive human control, I mean, there are devices, familiar devices, even your, your self-cleaning oven at home, um, when the temperature goes above 600 degrees Fahrenheit, the door is locked. So the, the, the homeowner cannot open the door, which would have pretty severe results with that high a temperature uh, in the oven. So we have to be aware of those excesses, uh, and it applies in medical devices and transportation and other, other technologies. I'd like to shift the conversation a little bit from uh, the tools themselves to the ways that we're going to ensure that the tools are safe. In your book, you talk about safety culture as a key proponent or a key piece, excuse me, of this governance and oversight structure. What does safety culture mean? That was a real education for me. I began to learn about the strategies of safety culture as practiced in aviation, where civil aviation has become respected for the great safety that's been built into these systems. And similarly, in medical applications, there's a strong safety culture, although that's much more complicated and there are still many medical errors. And still, there's an effort to try to control and limit them. So the civil aviation is the best example, and it has a set of practices from the certification of aircraft, um, the training of pilots, uh, the management uh, concerns, the audit trails from the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder um, so that when accidents occur, the National Transportation Safety Board can retrospectively analyze what happened and therefore do the things necessary to prevent future problems. Now, there's additional payoffs that have come in recent years of the flight data recorders because they detect also the near misses, the cases in which pilots actually saved a plane because of the good things they did. The second um, aspect of flight data recorders is that it kept track of the performance of aircraft. And so it was possible to detect and, and increase the preventative maintenance because the analysts came to know what was going wrong with, with uh, different classes of aircraft. And so that notion that you put a lot of effort into safety when you're dealing with life-critical applications is really important. Now, you know, we have other applications which are important as well, but not uh, are, are not life-critical. And so we might do less effort within those and still less when they're lightweight consumer or playful applications. So the level of effort and the devotion to personnel hiring budgets and schedules uh, increases as we go to more life critical applications. And the lessons of safety culture are it's expensive, it costs money, but it's a lot cheaper than dealing with the deadly outcomes and the losses that come from um, failures of life critical and consequential systems. And so I think the, the message for businesses is that safety culture is a competitive advantage. Companies that will develop this will become trusted, uh, respected, and their businesses should flourish. In 
the tech space specifically, which is notoriously averse to regulation and has the mantra, move fast and break things, applying safety culture to this environment, do you have any idea what that might look like? Good point. I mean, the past history um, was that that technology companies were uh, opposed to regulation, and they believed that regulation by government agencies would interfere with innovation. But the history of that is is has different lessons. When the U.S. government required automobile safety and fuel efficiency, it triggered a cascade of innovation in the, in the automobile industry to make safer, safer cars, which were more fuel efficient. When the European GDPR regulations about privacy and explainability uh, came along, there was a great outcry, but the result was about 100,000 papers have been published about explainability of AI and interpretability of AI as well. Um, so I think there's different ways to see it. And now, as we're getting to the days of where the large language models are producing potentially dangerous outcomes, the companies themselves are looking to government regulation as a way to validate what they've done and, and give a certification process that the public will accept. So um, we know that industry in the past has had resistance, but I think that's changing. I think the public expectation is that the technologies they use should be reliable, safe, and trustworthy, and there can be a role for government agencies. But I would say there's also a role for insurance companies, accounting firms, um, consulting firms, uh, non-governmental agencies, professional societies. There's a whole set of possible th- possibilities here that... Um, could do a great deal to improve the reliability, safety, and trustworthiness of AI-based systems. I'd like to pick up on that last point. In your book, you devote a chapter to independent oversight, so it's not a government, but as you mentioned, it could be professional societies, accounting firms, or insurance firms. Could you elaborate a little bit more on what that would look like? Thanks for mentioning it. Yes, I'm a great believer, a great believer in independent oversight mechanisms. These have worked quite well in the world, for example, of financial accounting, where the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S. requires every publicly listed company to have an internal audit as well as an independent external audit. And so the big four accounting firms, PwC, KPMG, Ernst & Young, and Deloitte, um, have done a good job, not a perfect job, but a good job in in tracking and reporting on the accounting practices of publicly traded companies. And the suggestion is we could do a similar thing for AI systems. And so these companies would pick up the role, as they're beginning to do, to um, independently audit. It's not from internally in the company, but it's an independent group that will look at that, that becomes experienced in the industry related, that looks at many different companies, and therefore they gain experience about what what works and what doesn't work. And so they are a way of transferring knowledge from one company to another and getting best practices to be put in place. It's not gonna be perfect, but independent oversight has proven again and again to be helpful. And 
That's the message of the book and the strategies, the three strategies for doing independent oversight are a key key idea that I hope will gain more and more acceptance. So if that's the role of independent oversight, what would the role of a government agency be in this uh, governance model that you've outlaid in your book? Well, yes, government agencies could do independent oversight, as they do now. The Federal Reserve Board uh, monitors the mortgage practices of banks and every month reviews the the mortgages to make sure that they adhere to legal practices. The Food and Drug Administration monitors uh, the uh, uh, pharmaceutical production and, and agricultural production and meat production. So there's a role there for government that's a somewhat different one from the ones that, that uh, private companies might conduct. And so there's a, there's complementary aspects and you know, that's still to be worked out how each industry might address it. Banking might be different from medicine, which might be different from transportation in terms of applying AI techniques. And that's what we're into, and that's what the book recommends is a strong, strong strategy for making reliable, safe, and trustworthy systems. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. It's been fantastic. Thanks, Jake. I mean, I really appreciate this. It's a topic I really believe in with great passion, and I hope your listeners will join in the group of people who are devoted to building a culture of human-centered AI that serves human needs, that ensures human control, while increasing the level of automation. Thanks again, Jake. Of course. Take care. Human-Centered AI can be found at the Oxford University Press.